What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us from Washington. This is Bloomberg Sound On. President Biden weighs in on First Republic. He just made the comments in the Rose Garden, an unrelated event here. Of course, First Republic, as you've been hearing, acquired by J.P. Morgan and a deal put together over the weekend with the help of the FDIC, with the help of regulators. Here's the president. These actions are going to make sure that the banking system is safe and sound, and that includes protecting small businesses across the country who need to make payroll for workers and their small businesses. And so let me be very clear. While depositors are being protected, shareholders are losing their investments. And critically, taxpayers are not the ones that are on the hook. All right. And that will be the message from the White House here. Yet J.P. Morgan becomes even bigger after receiving an exception to rules that prevent banks of that size from getting larger through consolidation. It did save the FDIC a few billion dollars, though, in its deposit insurance fund. J.P.'s got a lot of cash. Bloomberg's Kaylee Lines has been on the story. Of course, since the beginning here, Kaylee, you've had quite a morning. <laughs> yeah, so, technically a morning that kind of started overnight. Well, I guess that's true. So and a lot of people are kind of waking up to this, coming to terms with exactly what happened here. And again, it's this debate over bailout or no bailout. What do we call this? Well, it's definitely a failure of a bank. That's we know for that sure, for yes. sure. First Republic was seized by regulators, the FDIC, overnight. And then very quickly thereafter, a transaction took place in mm-hmm. which J.P. Morgan agreed to buy the bank, take over all of its assets. This includes $173 billion of loans, $30 billion of securities, and $92 billion in deposits. Mm -hmm. So this raises a question, Joe, because to your point about a bailout, the largest bank in the U.S. has just become even larger, been allowed to become Mm -hmm. even larger in order uh, to take over this bank and have the smallest possible impact on the deposit insurance fund. Because from our understanding here, at Bloomberg is that J.P. Morgan was the only bidder that went to the FDIC and offered to take over the entire First Republic Bank, including its problematic assets. Some money there, right? Yes, but there was FDIC money still involved. Yeah, there's going to be a $13 billion hit to the insurance fund as a result of this transaction, and there's a loss-sharing agreement between J.P. Morgan and the FDIC at play here as well. So it raises the question to your point about is it a bailout or not? In theory, no, it's not a bailout, but could there be some trickle down to the taxpayer at the end of the day because of this is is the tricky uh, political question and one that the Biden administration is going to have to grapple with. And redefining all the while too big to fail in terms of J.P. Morgan here. I mean, this is a behemoth. This is literally the largest bank in the U.S. It was already too big to fail, and now it has grown in size as a result of this transaction. But it really speaks to this whole uh, narrative, Joe, that those are the safe banks. All throughout the banking crisis, we've been having a conversation about how money was leaving some of the smaller lenders rushing to the likes of J.P. Morgan and others because they are too big to fail, because the government will always uh, backstop them and never let any of their depositors not be made whole. So it it kind of reinforces this whole question 
right? When we're talking about mid-sized banks failing because there's a crisis of confidence uh, in their ability to have, you know, full resolution should a failure happen, it kind of makes the point in some ways. Bloomberg's Kaylee Lines will be back in exactly one hour, hour two of Bloomberg Sound On. Thank you, Kaylee. As we add the voice of Nathan Dean, of course, senior analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. If you listen to this program, you know you can rely on Nathan for some important insights here as we wait for our conversation uh, with Citigroup CEO Jane Frazier. That's just a couple of minutes away. Nathan, it's good to see you here. You've also had a heck of a, a busy day, I suspect, maybe all weekend. Uh, without Jamie Dimon, this would have taken on a very different form, it sounds like. Yeah, you know, obviously, if you listen to the news reports, you know, PNC, U.S. Bank, there were a couple of other potential bidders for this. And, uh, uh, you know, obviously, J.P. Morgan emerges as the, as the winner. But if J.P. Morgan wasn't there and you had somebody that was wanting to buy bits and pieces of the bank and so forth, two things would happen. One, obviously, the government wouldn't as good wouldn't get as good of a deal as mm-hmm. it got. Mm-hmm. You know, the government uh, backstop would have to be even more. And two, this would have played out even longer. I mean, I, you know, if you think about how Silicon Valley Bank That played out over a series of a couple of weeks. You know, this played out over a weekend. And so Hmm. there would have been more discussion, more market angst, I think, about what is the future of the regional banking system, potentially even more people just taking deposits and running for the JP Morgans and the Bank of America's of the world. So uh, this wasn't a situation where I think the government can say this is a great job or not. It just it is what it is. It's just to save the day for now. There are a lot of questions, and I suspect that Shanali is going to ask Jane Frazier about this in just a minute when we hear this interview from the Milken Institute. Can Washington breathe now? Is Can we say that we're past the worst here, that we're not worried about further contagion? Well, so Washington has a problem. The problem is, what is the future of the U.S. Regional Bank? Because, you know, back in January, the acting comptroller of the currency gave a speech in which he said that there are too big to manage banks out there. Not too big to fail, but too big yeah, to manage. Okay. And his idea was that the concern was a bank like PNC or U.S. Bank, the only option it would have for a mid-sized bank failing is to merge with another one, and then you have an even bigger bank. And J.P. Morgan getting even bigger is not something that the regulators or the policymakers want. You've certainly seen statements from Elizabeth Warren and Sherrod Brown that they are not happy with this. So the question that Washington has is they may have thrown money at the wall and survive, you know, solve the issue for today. But the question is, where do we go from here? Congress isn't really going to help the regulators. It takes forever. I'm just not sure there's going to be any answers, uh, at least for the next two years. Straight scoop from Nathan Dean. Great to see you. Let's do something with when we have a little more time this week. We always like to compare notes with Nathan Dean, Bloomberg Intelligence, senior government analyst with us on Bloomberg Sound On. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. And as we prepare to assemble our panel here, we're going to be talking with Jeannie Shanzano and Lester Munson uh, for the next bit and their take on this deal and what we heard from Jane Frazier, what we heard as well from the president, because he's taking this opportunity to ask again for tightened regulations in Congress. I've called on Congress to give regulators the tools to hold bank executives accountable, and I've called on regulators to strengthen regulations and supervision of large and regional banks. And folks, uh, we have to make sure that we're not back in this position again. We assembled our panel with Bloomberg Politics contributor, Democratic analyst Jeannie Shanzano, joined today by Lester Munson, Republican strategist, principal at government relations firm BGR Group. Great to have you both here. Jeannie, those, I'm assuming those calls uh, are not going to lead to much here. There was a thought that we wouldn't see another bank fail. We did. But there does not still seem to be a path for action on Capitol Hill, does there? No, there doesn't seem to be a path uh, in Congress uh, to increase regulation. I think he is right. I think we have seen since March that the regulators that we all rely on to oversee these banks don't seem to be capturing as much as they should. And that's an understatement. So he's right. They need to do a better job. But if he's hoping that some of this is going to come from Congress, you know, it's you're hard pressed to see at this point where we get anything of that sort out of Congress in the next two years. So, of course, that means we're going to be relying on the very people who failed these last three times around with these banks to do a better job. And I think that's, you know, really asking the American public to have faith in people whom they may increasingly be losing faith in. So I think that is a big ask. But he is right. We do need the regulations and the regulators in place. What's your take on this, Lester? And, And was this the best possible outcome to have J.P. Morgan get the exception to make the purchase? Well, it is a solution that seems to be working. So is it the best one? I'm not sure. There's definitely going to be political repercussions for this. Um, The the far left of the Democratic Party is already attacking the solution as uh, somehow being bad for the economy. So I think I think we're going to be in the in the uh, wash and spin cycle here Mm -hmm. on banking regulation for quite some time. And and let me just say on on Congress acting, not sure that it's that Congress needs to have tighter regulations and more tools for regulators. I think the regulators ought to be using the tools they have. What Congress can do and what it ought to be doing is reducing government spending, right? Like the, the issue here is inflation, which is driving some of these problems. Congress can actually address the inflation issue by lowering the budget deficit, lowering government spending, and at some point, 
the, the banking crisis, such as it is, is going to be linked to the debt ceiling crisis. It's a great opportunity for Republicans to say, we actually have a solution we can do here, and the House started it last week. I'm going to get there, too, with the debt ceiling in a moment. Elizabeth Warren tweets, Jeannie, the failure of First Republic Bank shows how deregulation has made the too-big-to-fail problem even worse. A poorly supervised bank snapped up by an even bigger bank. Ultimately, taxpayers will be on the hook. And she does call on Congress uh, needs to make major reforms, she writes, to fix a broken banking system. Is she right about this? A poorly supervised bank snapped up by an even bigger one leaves taxpayers on the hook. And I ask you that because the FDIC kicked in $13 billion here, its deposit insurance fund, and would have had to pay more if it was a smaller bank. It would have. And you know what's striking about her statement? It's almost exactly opposite of the statement from the president. I believe he <laughs> right. said, quote unquote, taxpayers are not on the Isn't hook. Isn't that right? And this is where we get to this sort of semantic game that we've talked about. You know, do you describe it as a bailout or not? And I am not an economist. I am a political scientist. And I will tell you that for the American public, these semantic games are, you know, just that. What they hear is that big banks are coming in to save little banks. Does that mean we now find ourselves at a point in which in the United States we are reliant on these big banks to do this every time this happens? Does that mean, for instance, that they are not going to transfer the costs of that to customers? Most people know that that is the case. And so when we hear over and over again, taxpayers are not on the hook, well, bank customers are. And what that results in is people feeling less confident in banks. And and that is a real problem for all of us. So I do think Congress needs to act. And I do think they need to act in more ways than just addressing, which is a big issue, just addressing the debt and deficit and governmental Mm -hmm. spending. I do think that they need to make sure regulations are tightened up. Let's look at the fact that you had people from SVB on the San Francisco Fed. I mean, that is a big problem. You can't regulate yourself. So there are steps that need to be taken, and and there are things that Congress should do for all of us. All right, let's hear what the president said about this. And Lester, I love your your input on this bailout. Don't call it a bailout. Here's the president in the Rose Garden. These actions are going to make sure that the banking system is safe and sound, and that includes protecting small businesses across the country who need to make payroll for workers and their small businesses. And so let me be very clear. While depositors are being protected, shareholders are losing their investments. And critically, taxpayers are not the ones that are on the hook. But Elizabeth Warren said they would be, Lester. So which one is it? Well, I I actually think President Biden has a pretty sensible policy here. The question is, is it sustainable in his party Mm. when it gets such an immediate uh, uh, brushback pitch from his colleagues in the Senate? If if I were Robert F. Kennedy Jr., I'd be out there talking about this issue every single day. I'd be calling uh, Senator Warren to talk about maybe changing her endorsement for for next year's election. And, And maybe I'd bring it up in the presidential debates. Oh, wait. There aren't going to be any in the, on that side of the aisle. <laughs> well, Donald Trump says he's not showing up for his either, so we might have a problem uh, with that. But you mentioned the debt ceiling, and this is all, of course, taking place against uh, that debate that's still gone nowhere. I don't think anything happened over the weekend or this morning. Uh, and Kevin McCarthy was asked about it uh, overseas today. Of course, he delivered the big speech in Israel, and he's making news over there. One of the questions he was asked, you can't avoid it. And what was your second question? Debt limit. The president still hasn't talked to me. Still hasn't talked to me. And the president got to this as well again today with the hostage line. America is not a deadbeat nation. 
we have never, ever failed to meet the debt. Now, as a result, one of the most respected nations of the world, we pay our bills, and we should do so without reckless hostage-taking from some of the mega-Republicans in Congress. At what point is he going to be accused of reckless hostage-taking, uh, Lester? And I ask you that, uh, acknowledging the White House has been very consistent on this, and he says that they will sit down and hash out the budget, but he won't negotiate over the debt limit. We could get an X date here today, tomorrow, and uh, it, it's going to be a lot closer, apparently, than some thought, it, meaning very little time to figure this out. When do they get in the room? Yeah, I think it's. I think we're looking at the middle of June would be a pretty would be a pretty healthy guess. And with the with kind of the plan B being maybe you suspend the debt limit issue, Congress yeah. suspends it for three months and gets you into into September, October. But I think you know the calls are coming in from Democrats now to the White House saying, okay, it's time. Like we we got we got your position, but now the House has passed their version of the deal. It's time to start talking, and let's let's figure out a way where everyone can come to the table, uh, consistent with their previous statements, and find a way forward here. Jeannie, nothing's changed. Uh, what what would make Joe Biden sit down this week that wouldn't last week? Is it the well, actual date? <laughs> it's the date. It's also the pressure that Lester mentioned, which he's going to get and he is getting from Democrats to at least have a conversation. But, you know, the reality is, is the politics of this, the Biden administration feels are working to their advantage. So I think they're going to hold off. But I do think the president has an obligation to meet with Kevin McCarthy and start the ball rolling on how we are going to move forward on this, especially. And, you know, even if this didn't happen over the weekend with this bank failure, especially in light of this. We are seeing enormous questions about Americans' confidence in the economy and President Biden's ability to manage it. And so those are things he's going to have to address. And so I do think he needs to talk to Kevin McCarthy, and he can make very clear before they meet that he won't discuss, you know, the debt ceiling. That's going to be separate, but that they're going to talk about the budget and push Kevin McCarthy to push his caucus to raise the debt ceiling, either temporarily or for a longer term so they can get on to the business of governing. It does sound like we're going to have to buy some time here. I mean, by the time there's an X date, they realize it's, what, a month, maybe less when you factor in uh, time spent out of Washington. I just don't see how they get anything done in time here. We spoke earlier uh, with Dick Durbin, Bloomberg's David Weston did, Lester, about this very issue, and he, he made the point that he thinks Kevin McCarthy's basically handcuffed because he wants to preserve the Trump tax cuts. Here's what he said. One-fourth of our current debt was accumulated in the last four years of the Trump presidency, uh, just to give you an idea. And how did that happen? It was the Trump tax cuts for the wealthiest individual in America. And now Speaker McCarthy is trying to protect those. That's why he keeps uh, suggesting cuts in spending. Some of the cuts are patently unreasonable. To think that we would remove 30,000 law enforcement and Border Patrol officials at this moment in our history, hard to imagine the same party that just campaigned on don't defund the police is defunding the police with the McCarthy proposal. And you go through the long list and you say, these are serious cuts. Can't we consider the revenue breaks that we, uh, the tax breaks that we gave to the wealthiest people during the Trump years as part of the package, whatever it may be moving forward? But nobody's having that conversation, right, Lester? The Trump tax cuts, it seems like that kind of talk from Joe Biden might be more effective than, than the stonewalling. What's your take? 
Yeah, I think what we we I have a ton of respect for Senator Durbin. He's he's a very fe- effective messenger, and I yeah. hope the White House is taking some cues from what he's saying because there's your beginning of the negotiation right there. Uh, some of these cuts are unacceptable. Let's throw this thing on the table. We see where the Democratic priorities are. Now let's go match them up with the Republican ones and try to find middle ground. Jeannie, what do you think on this uh, on this line? I was compelled by that moment from Dick Durbin because he seemed to articulate this in a way the White House has not. He does. And he raises the prospect that here's what we are thinking. Here is a place where we can have a conversation, where we can debate and potentially come up with a, you know, a way to move forward. What we're hearing from the White House, of course, is they want to take what the Republicans passed in Congress, this Republican wish list, and they are trying to make the case to people across the country in states across the country what these cuts would mean for them. And they are quite draconian when you look at them. So that's what they're going to spend this week, I believe, doing while the House is out and Kevin McCarthy is overseas. Mm -hmm. And then I think you see them come back and they'll try to get down to these conversations. But they do want to make this case that what these, as the president says, MAGA Republicans have done is going to be detrimental to people across the country. And so that's where I think the focus is at this point out of the White House. Yeah, interesting. Uh, as we follow the speaker on his tour uh, abroad, he's in Israel, as we mentioned, the house is out. And it was suggested, uh, Lester, that it might have been a good point for him to make an actual example to say, you know what, I'm canceling the trip. I passed the budget, passed the debt ceiling. I'm canceling my trip. Mr. President, I'm available when you are. Would, would it have been smart to stay in town? Uh, I I see the temptation to do that. I think the White House had already kind of given him the stiff arm and said, we're not going to talk to you while while the House is out. And he said, look, I'm willing to come back. Mm -hmm. Um, At least they're, you know, I'm I'm trying to find the silver lining here. At least they're starting to think about dancing. They may not be out on the dance floor yet. They may not be showing us their best moves, but they're at least talking to each other. They can hear the the possibility of it. I guess that's right. Jeannie and Lester, stay with us. You're not going to believe what else Kevin McCarthy said today in Israel had nothing to do with the debt ceiling. It actually had to do with Ukraine. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. This is Bloomberg Sound On, the fastest show in politics. With our panel, Lester Munson and Jeannie Shantano with us today. Having heard from Kevin McCarthy on his trip to Israel, he spoke there uh, to the the legislature a bit earlier on and then held a news conference, which would be kind of par for the course. And you heard he took a question on the debt ceiling. He also took a question on funding for Ukraine. Remember, remember no blank check? We talked about it a lot on this program. And he gets a question from a Russian reporter. And I want you to hear the whole thing. I did not edit any of this the question and the answer today in Israel. Uh, we know that uh, you don't support uh, the current unlimited and uh, uncontrolled uh, supplies of weaponry and aid to Ukraine. So can you comment, is it possible if in the near future uh, the U.S. policy regarding sending weaponry to Ukraine will change? Yeah, I'm not sure. The, the, the sound here is not good. Did he say, I don't support aid to Ukraine? No, I vote for aid for Ukraine. I support aid for Ukraine. I do not support what your country has done you to, to Ukraine. I do not support your killing of the children either. And I think for one standpoint, you should pull out. And I don't think it's right. And we will continue to support because 
the rest of the world sees it just as it is. Jeannie Shanzano, uh, wow, we haven't heard comments like that. He has qualified the no-blank check to say there should be accountability, but not about the war effort, not specifically about uh, what we have seen from Russia, certainly not to a Russian while abroad. What'd you make of it? I give kudos to Kevin McCarthy. You know, on this and also his meeting with the president of Taiwan, Mm. I think these two have been, you know, bright spots for, in my view, of Kevin McCarthy's speakership, which reminds me, you know, presidents tend to go overseas as their administration waxes on and they have more success. Now I think we're starting to see a point where speakers may have more success on foreign policy than they do in their own domestic (laughs) policy with their own caucus. And, you know, I give him credit. He made a very strong statement there. He pushed back. I think most thinking people agree accountability is critically important, but he said very clearly he supports the Ukrainian government and he supports aid to Ukraine and he is, um, you know, pushes back against what Russia has done here and he is right on all of those things. Lester, Marjorie Taylor Greene's not going to like that one. No, she's not. And will will uh, will it endanger her support of the speaker. I suspect it won't. Um, this is, It was a terrific statement. I agree with Jeannie totally, but it's not a total shocker either. Kevin, Kevin McCarthy has been a supporter. He did talk about the no blank check, which is not a totally unreasonable thing to say in the, in the long run, but it's, it's great to see him reaffirm explicitly on the record, support for aid for the Ukrainians. Kudos to him. He's having he's having a good run. The uh, speaker's doing really well. He passed the package uh, a few days ago that no one thought he could pass on the budget and the debt limit. Speaker's speaker's on a, is really on a roll right now. Hmm. Uh, it's not just Marjorie Taylor Greene, Jeannie, Lauren Boebert, Matt Gates. I could go on. There are other. Uh, quote unquote troublemakers, you know, who challenged uh, not the case of Marjorie Taylor Greene, but others who challenged his speakership in the outset. And it does make you wonder, as this debt ceiling is being negotiated, if he's walking on eggshells here when it comes to foreign policy. He could be to a certain extent. I think it's more likely he's walking on eggshells as it pertains to the debt ceiling, because the reality is he's going to have to go to the White House. He's going to have to negotiate and he is going to have to get a certain number of his members to agree with what he he comes up with. And it's going to be a compromise with the Democrats that's, you know, probably more than four or five won't like. And if that happens, then he's going to have to have some moderate Democrats come help him out and that they're not going to like. So, you know, he may be in a very difficult position as it pertains to this debt ceiling because, of course, while you know he did get it over the finish line just narrowly in last week before he went to Israel, mm-hmm. that was the easiest thing he is going to have to do in this process. It only gets harder from here, and that's the challenge for Kevin McCarthy. I said eggshells, Lester. Maybe I should have said thin ice because th- there was a lot of talk about a motion to vacate that, hey, if he doesn't do this the way certain factions, namely the Freedom Caucus, does not like when it comes to the debt limit and budget negotiations, he could be out of a job. Are you still of that mind, or has he consolidated power more effectively than that? I, I'm starting to think he's consolidated power pretty effectively. Uh, he's Jeannie's right. He's going to have it. He's going to have the next vote is much tougher. It's going to be a compromise. There's going to be things in there Republicans don't like, yeah. and he's going to have to get a majority of the majority to vote for it. What happens to him? later when he's relying on re- democratic votes to get this package passed that remains to be seen i suspect 
the original vote for speaker back in January was much more cathartic than people realized and, it was, <laughs> and had great utility for Kevin McCarthy in particular because he he had to talk to everyone. He had to cut all the deals and he had to and he had to win the ultimate vote. And he did that. And that that has it clearly strengthened him on these other issues. As he said at the time, Jeannie, we learned how to govern. We'll find out, of course, if that's true. Uh, many thanks to Jeannie Shanzano and Lester Munson. Great panel. Boy, we covered a lot of ground here from First Republic Bank all the way through funding the war effort in Ukraine and a lot of stuff in between. Great conversation and great analysis from our panel, as you would expect on Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. In the age of TikTok here, and well, TikTok bans being proposed and protecting our kids from the dangers of social media, we think back a few years for some wisdom because it was on this day in Washington in 1969 that Mr. Rogers testified before the Senate Subcommittee on Communications. It's a very famous moment. You may have seen it. He was there to justify government funding that was proposed for this new nonprofit corporation for public broadcasting, funding that was being threatened at the time. And it's funny how some things carry on. Fred Rogers, who had just launched a new show for kids called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood testified, well, in a way that only he could. He put down his script so he could just talk and described that good feeling of control, as he called it, answering the question a child had asked him about controlling their anger. Listen. What do you do with the mad that you feel when you feel so mad you could bite, when the whole wide world seems oh so wrong and nothing you do seems very right? What do you do? Do you punch a bag? Do you pound some clay or some dough? Do you round up friends for a game of tag or see how fast you go? It's great to be able to stop when you've planned a thing that's wrong and be able to do something else instead and think this song. I can stop when I want to, can stop when I wish, can stop, stop, stop anytime. And what a good feeling to feel like this and know that the feeling is really mine. Know that there's something deep inside that helps us become what we can. For a girl can be someday a lady and a boy can be someday a man. I think it's wonderful. I think it's wonderful. Chairman Looks like it. you just earned the $20 million. And he brought the house down. Actual applause in the hearing room for Mr. Rogers. Right, Charlie. Neighborhood of Make Believe. This many years later still hits home to us. I'm Joe Matthew. Kaylee Lines is on the way in because you know what? Hour two of Sound On starts right now. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. 
Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We've got breaking news from Washington. Kaylee, we were talking right at this time an hour ago uh, about First Republic. At least we're past that part of the saga here. But there's still a lot of questions about whether regulations should be tightened. We've been discussing some of the options here, certainly did with our panel. And now it looks like the FDIC is prepared to make some changes, too. Yeah, well, remember the First Republic failure, but also the failures of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank raised questions about the insurance cap, the deposit insurance cap of $250,000, because, of course, in the cases of SBB and Signature, even uninsured depositors were made whole because there were so many that were uninsured. So it caused a lot of conversation here in Washington about what should become of that cap. But obviously, the FDIC is looking internally as well. And what we understand now is that they are looking at three different options for the deposit insurance fund, one of which could be a targeted coverage approach where business accounts get more coverage Hmm. than the current cap. And the FDIC says that would be the best option for financial stability. Importantly, Joe, that would require congressional approval for, Uh which raises a whole other set of questions. Even if the FDIC decided it did want to do that, would Congress give it a thumbs up? Much more uh, of a challenge in that case. We talked to Bill Isaac, Mm. the former FDIC chair Uh, on balance of power on Friday, and that's exactly what he recommended, right? He said business checking accounts that do not draw an interest rate should be covered basically unlimited, if that's how you want to fix this, as opposed to the the $250,000 cap uh, that that individuals uh, deal with. So clearly this has been something that's been aired out throughout the agency here as an idea. Yeah, absolutely. And and the agency is noting as well how technology makes a difference in how they should be viewing things now. The idea that technological changes, aka the ability to move money uh, on an app at the speed of light as soon as you see a tweet yeah. uh, on Twitter, that and high concentrations of uninsured depositors in certain pockets of the banking system may make this overhaul something that they do indeed want to pursue. Again, these are just recommendations, possible considerations. The agency isn't committing to taking any particular approach at this point, but clearly a live conversation. I do wonder what Mick Mulvaney thinks about all of this. He joins us each week at this time, and we've been talking to Mick on a daily or weekly basis, rather, since the failure of SVBs. We've kind of been a group conversation here. Maybe we need a group hug at some point. Mick, welcome back. As always, former OMB director, former acting White House chief of staff, 
founder of the Freedom Caucus, as he is a former congressman as well. Is this a good idea, uh, Mick, for FDIC uh, deposit insurance? Is this what's needed? I think it certainly merits some looking. I mean, I think Kayla makes some excellent points that, you know, if, if, if the world is if the technology is changing the world where you can move money so rapidly, do we need to look at the way that we insure different accounts or different accounts need different sorts of coverage? I think it makes a lot of sense. I, the one thing that comes to my mind is a former member of Congress listening to what you just said. Again, yeah. this is breaking news. Of course, I'm sitting there thinking in the back of my mind, okay, that's fine. That makes sense. Who's going to pay for it? Huh. And if businesses mm-hmm. are willing to pay more for different or better insurance, that's that's fine. But I, I I think it's important just to recognize this kind of stuff isn't free unless the government is going to be the insurer of last resort, in which case it's, I guess, sort of free because it's a socialized sort of cost. But um, that, that, that would be that would be my point, and maybe it'll come up here. I'm at the Milken Conference in Los Angeles this week. Patrick Lee Henry is speaking here later uh, this afternoon. Maybe he'll get a couple of questions about this, and we mm-hmm. get the ball rolling on that discussion. But uh, I, I think it's a fair and proper discussion to have. Do you think that this is a discussion that has bipartisan support, or at least there is something on Capitol Hill that would be driving Congress to consider such action? Because it feels like there was so much talk in the aftermath of SVB and Signature, but not a lot of people are blinking that much at First Republic. It feels like the conversation largely has just kind of died, crisis over, no need for congressional action. Well, I think the reason this one might be a little bit different is that this was really expected. I mean, if there's anything unexpected right. about First Republic, it's what took so long for this to happen. We, hmm. I thought this was going to happen three or four weeks ago. So what was going on in the meantime? Was Were the terms changing? I, I don't understand that. So I think that bears some asking. But I think there may be other explanations as to why this is being looked at differently um, than what happened at SVB, which was you know, unexpected. If you talk about bipartisanship, yeah, I think it's fair to say that there's not many things that are bipartisan in Washington, D.C. This, this, these, these days, but certainly concern or awareness for the role of, of community banks, even regional banks, is sort of bipartisan. A lot of folks know on both sides of the aisle that the J.P. Morgans and Citibanks of the world don't lend money to the local pizza shop. That's just not, that's not how the banking system works. So, well, it's short to say the sort of bipartisanship that you get when you deal with challenging China, say, um, you do get at least a fair discussion and an open dialogue when it comes to how to make sure that uh, we don't uh, mistreat community banks. Mick, Elizabeth Warren uh, tweeted a little while ago in reaction to this deal. Uh, this is just a portion of the tweet. A poorly supervised bank was snapped up by an even bigger bank. Ultimately, taxpayers will be on the hook. We're talking about $13 billion already in FDIC insurance, and there are some lawmakers who would tell you in the end that comes out of taxpayers' pockets. But we're going to get back to this, was it a bailout or not a bailout uh, conversation? And is she right, taxpayers end up on the hook? Well, I think she's right to raise the issue, because that goes to the point I just made to Kaylee, which is what took so long? Yeah. Why, why, why did this take three or four weeks to work out? What was happening? What, what, what was J.P. Morgan waiting for? Are the terms dramatically different? And are you setting a precedent? Now, I saw my good friend Gary Cohn this morning on television make a comment about, are we entering a new moral hazard, which is where no one buys a bank till after they're in receivership, because the deal just gets better and better, perhaps, the longer that you wait. And if the longer you wait, the more that the taxpayers are on the hook, maybe Elizabeth has a, has a, has a, a, has a point that needs to be addressed. So, look, anytime we go through this, it's, it's not a banking crisis. Uh, everybody says it's you know, limited to maybe these three. I don't know if I believe that or not. Um, but certainly it's not the immediate sort of crisis we saw in 2008. So we have a chance to sit back and look at this 
thoroughly and intelligently as opposed to panicking, uh, like I think many regulators did and many lawmakers did back in the uh, great financial crisis. It's been an entire week since we talked about the debt ceiling, Mick. Uh, Speaker McCarthy got his bill passed, even though some said that would not happen. And now he seems to think the ball is in Joe Biden's court. But here's what Joe Biden said this morning in the Rose Garden, because they really are trying to delineate between the debt ceiling and budget negotiations, even though Kevin McCarthy wants to deal with both at once. Here's the president. America is not a deadbeat nation. We have never, ever failed to meet the debt. And as a result, one of the most respected nations of the world, we pay our bills, and we should do so without reckless hostage-taking from some of the mega-Republicans in Congress. We're going to get a next date. It looks like today, maybe tomorrow, Mick. Uh, is he right? This is hostage-taking. Why not just raise the debt ceiling and get on with the conversation? Well, the reason is that the, the short answer is because the law says so. The law says, you, you know, you're supposed to negotiate. The law say you're supposed to negotiate, but the Congress has to vote. And again, if you have to vote on something, why would why do you have to say it's a rubber stamp? I don't get those. I don't understand what people say. We automatically have to raise the debt every time I hear that line, and you hear it a lot. This time, so every time we deal with the debt, saying, "Oh, we pay our bills. We've already paid our bills. Now we paid it with borrowed money, and it's not like we're we're borrowing money today to pay for something that we spent eight months ago or ten months ago. That money's already been borrowed and been incurred." and then been spent. So we're really borrowing money to spend money tomorrow. And that's one of those sorts of things where I think the Democrats especially have won the sort of the narrative because it's, it makes it look like we're not paying our credit card bet, debt. And that's not that's not what that's not the equivalent here. But isn't it spending that we have agreed to pay for? So even if we haven't paid for it yet, we've already agreed to do it. I do. I'm just trying that's to follow correct. you here. You're exactly right, and that's where this sort of becomes different than most people look at it as a credit card, or at least most people want you to look at it as a credit card because they like, oh, we've already we've already bought this bridge. Now we have to pay for it. That's not how this works. The, the bridge that we've built has already been paid for. It's something we want to do tomorrow. Now, yes, Congress has agreed that they want to do this tomorrow, mm-hmm. right? But there's no money to do it tomorrow, so they have to borrow more money tomorrow to do it and have to raise the debt ceiling to do it. So we're not paying for stuff that's already been incurred, already been spent, already been built. You, you need to borrow money to do something tomorrow that you have agreed to do. You're absolutely right um, that they've agreed to do it, and there's just no money left to do it. So Again, there's, because it's government, it's not exactly that the, 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 the analogy of the household credit card does not hold. Um, you have to ask yourself if not building a bridge tomorrow that we all agreed three weeks ago to pay for, is that a default? I don't believe that to be a default. I believe a default is when you don't pay the, the interest and the principal and the money you owe. But wow. some people do consider that to be a default. You're redefining the terms before our eyes here, Mick. Or maybe you're looking at it a little differently than some have because the talking points on both sides. They, Speaker McCarthy loves talking about that credit card every day. It's it's misleading. I, 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 know, I know. And this is what I tell my, my friends. I'm like, guys, we don't really know how the government functions when you're in Congress. You vote to appropriate. You vote to authorize money. You vote to appropriate money, but the money gets spent down at the Office of Management and Budget, and then you know, ultimately it's drawn in by the Treasury. So I, not even members of Congress understand how the system works. They're not talking about a debt ceiling to pay for something last week. They're talking about a debt ceiling to pay for something next week. But ultimately, this entire conversation that they are having, regardless of level of understanding, we understand, especially as watchers of financial market that markets, that it could have massive economic implications and ultimately even result in the downgrade of the United States' credit rating. I mean, 
semantics yeah, I, are semantics, but this is this is real potential consequence, Mick. It is, and the downgrade is is is, is consequential. There's no question. My understanding is that if we if we lose the the AAA rating on on the uh, uh, on the second uh, rating agency, I always get them mixed up as to which one downgraded us back in 2011, 2013. But that could be important in that it might disqualify certain financial institutions from holding uh, U.S. Treasuries uh, as as collateral. And that's that's absolutely important. Uh, by the same token, if you go back and you read, and I believe it was the S&P that downgraded us a decade ago, if you read the report, it said, yes, that the the political mayhem necessary to raise the debt ceiling is part of the reason for our downgrade. But if you continue to read the report, it says, and what's even worse is that they haven't made a provision for how to handle their fiscal situation. And that in the long term contributes to this downgrade as well. So just automatically raising the debt ceiling without drama, as every you know the Democrats say they want to do, doesn't necessarily guarantee that you're not going to get downgraded because we're still not addressing the spending problem and the long-term debt issue. Well, God forbid. Did you, are you telling our listeners they still need to worry about a downgrade even if they solve this? Sure. You're $31 trillion in debt. You have no, you have no plan to, to change the curve. I mean, look at the unfunded. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I'm saying. But that's a longer discussion for another day. Look, I think we're approaching nearly a hundred trillion dollars in unfunded government liabilities. A hundred trillion, three times the current debt right now. So, yeah, you should be concerned about the long term stability and the long term financial health of the country when you've got a, a, a fiscal situation where Congress is incapable, not not literally not possible for them to balance the budget. Mick, as we are having this conversation and literally with every passing minute, in theory, getting closer to the X date, Speaker Kevin McCarthy maybe thinks, you know, his part of this job is done because he got the bill passed last week. But he's not even in the country. He was in Israel today, only the second Speaker of the House to address the Knesset. What do you make of his his trip over there? Oh, it's it's not unusual. I would think uh, that, you know, the fact that certainly uh, it's it's unprecedented in terms of he's only the second person. But I think it's it's fair to, to say that he, he passed his bill and he's got a chance to do some other stuff. Uh, his work is not finished, but at least as you per, per, you know proceed down the, the sort of the, the the chessboard, he's made his move. So now the question is, you know, what are the Democrats going to do next? I don't think the Democrats have decided yet whether or not it's going to be the White House that handles the negotiations or the Senate. When we talked last week, I was under the impression it might be the Senate. It would be Mitch McConnell working. With Chuck Schumer. Now, I, I hear some grumblings. Lindsey Graham, I think, said over the week um, that he, he thinks it's incumbent upon McCarthy to deal with with Biden. I'm not sure why that would be. We all know, we all know that the bill that's going to pass ultimately is going to be the pass that comes out of the Senate because they need the 60 votes. And people forget about that. This is not a reconcilable in terms of the budget reconciliation bill. You need to have 60 votes, which means you're going to have to have Republican support. So I'm not sure why everybody looks to the White House and to Kevin McCarthy. McCarthy did his job. He passed a bill. People said he couldn't, and he did. Um, typically now the bill goes to the Senate, and that's the way that that's the way that, that the sausage gets made. So I'm surprised that the Senate isn't taking it up, but I'm surprised that more people aren't asking why Schumer and McConnell aren't yes. to talk about what their bill might look like. Well, rest assured, Mick, we're asking a lot of people that question, uh, <laughs> namely lawmakers in the House. And I sure, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that we'll, we'll actually be able to talk to a senator. I believe Bill Haggerty is joining us mm-hmm. uh, a little bit later on on Balance of Power. Uh, Mick, uh, good luck over there. And thank you for joining us from the Milken Institute uh, in Beverly Hills. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. 
Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Sound On, the fastest show in politics with some breaking news around us today and certainly uh, the acquisition of First Republic among them. But, Kaylee, we're hearing about FDIC uh, breaking news as well as they consider potential changes to deposit insurance to keep another bank from going down. And it's not the $250,000 cap that we all deal with as individuals. This would be for business accounts. Yeah, that's one thing they're considering is that they're looking at potentially a targeted coverage approach where business accounts do get more coverage than that current cap. And the FDIC thinks that would be the best option for financial stability. This is just one of three options they have laid out uh, for the deposit insurance fund as they are looking at some kind of overhaul in the aftermath of the series of bank failures we have seen. The issue, Joe, is, is that there's only so much that the FDIC can do unilaterally. A move like that raising the cap for even just one group would require congressional buy-in. And that kind of remains an open question as to whether or not that would be something uh, that this divided Congress could get behind. As Mick Mulvaney said, how do you pay for it? That would, of course, be the first question on Capitol Hill. I wonder what uh, Keith Noreka makes of this. Executive VP Chair, Banking Supervision and Regulation Group at Potomac Global Partners. Keith is back with us. We we spoke right after uh, the the initial round of collapses, or at least the attempts to, to prevent further contagion here. And Keith, welcome back. It's great to have you with us. We thought we'd be talking about this Fed report, uh, and maybe you want to get to that from Friday on the failure of SVB. But this First Republic story uh, obviously is a major one. And now the FDIC uh, putting up a menu of options, we'll say here, on on strengthening, at least targeted to some extent, like Kaylee said, changes to deposit insurance. Is it the right move? Well, uh, <clears throat> look, I think something needs to be done, right? Because, um, you know, we've seen some some runs uh, basically by uh, these type of accounts. Uh, and uh, certainly in the payroll context, it's uh, it's troublesome um, for workers who, who may have to, you know, get paid on a Friday and not get paid in the context of SVB. So, um, you know, I think a lot of people here in Washington are looking at, um, you know, targeted ways to, you know, maybe stop the run, but not grant unlimited deposit insurance to everyone, which I think would have some negative ramifications in the sense of um, being, you know, impossible to pay for uh, might be the top of the list. And then also, you know, make bank debt and equity a lot more expensive. Yeah, Keith, as you're making that payroll port, pay, payroll point, I'm thinking back to when Silicon Valley Bank was Uh, on the verge of failure and then ultimately did fail on March 10th before we knew a few days later that the government was going to make all of those uninsured depositors whole. You had, you know, the startup folks out in Silicon Valley saying this is an extinction level event for some of these startups. They're not going to be able to pay any of their bills. Um, You know, so many of them had millions. So so it definitely is, you know, for good reason, something that the FDIC is looking at. But politically, do you really think that this is something that Congress could get behind because they're going to need to? Well, look, I think um, in the financial crisis, as you'll recall, the FDIC did this. They did a temporary account guarantee of what they call transaction accounts, which were meant to get at the business account issue. Um, That then became outlawed (laughs) by Hmm. Dodd-Frank. So it's uh, the proverbial, you know, uh, Congress outlaws the fire department after the fire uh, type thing. And so I think, you know, we're having to revisit some of these issues 
from Dodd-Frank. And I think, you know, there are larger issues to be, uh, you know, potentially revisited in light of all this. Right. Um, yeah. Well, you know, we know we, we know that the, the Fed's vice chair of supervision, Michael Barr, is looking at some of that revisitation. Well, and it's not even like the rollback of Dodd-Frank. I mean, I think like what, you know, the the. The headline of, of First Republic is like we have the same solution that we had in 2008 uh, to Bear Stearns, right? Which is J.P. Morgan coming to buy to them out, bigger. right? So, <laughs> so what did we spend billions of dollars and uh, hundreds of thousands of hours of time to do to get ourselves back in the same situation, right? I mean, something needs to be looked at, and we're very, you know, the. The, 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 the remedy of Dodd-Frank was to be very prescriptive in what needs to be done. And I'm not sure being more prescriptive, uh, it's like telling you the exact things you need to do to drive a car and having so many you can't look outside the window uh, and smashing into the car in front of you. And, and that's <laughs> almost, I think, a good uh, analogy to what happened here. The the defect uh, in in what we saw in Silicon Valley Bank and Signature in First Republic is, I think, as Jamie Dimon said in a shareholder letter, a defect hiding in plain sight. Mm. And so what in our regulatory culture, in our risk management culture, has made us so focused on backward looking that we can't have a resilient and adaptable system to deal with the unknown, to deal with the unexpected? That's sort of where we need to head. And it can't be oh, you know, like in the process of streamlining in 2018, that was wrong. And we need to, you know, roll back to like very heavily, you know, focused on preventing Lehman from failing again. Well, that obviously, I think, was was more of the takeaway I had from the bar report, which was there was a lot going on, a lot of plates being juggled. Uh, people at regular inside the regulatory agencies and inside of the banks were being forced to be jack of all trades and master of none. And some plates got dropped, right? Uh, big plates that are very expensive mm -hmm. plates. Um, I mean, we just had, again, the second largest bank failure in history after Silicon Valley Bank. So yeah. within the course well, of one quarter of one year, um, you know, the, you this is unsustainable. Yeah. Massive failures. Let's talk about, though, the resolution of that, because the FDIC came in, took receivership of the bank, sold it yeah. to J.P. Morgan, already a bank that was too big to fail. Now it's yeah. even way, way too big <laughs> to fail, perhaps. What is your view on that, that J.P. Morgan ultimately was the winning bidder, even though it required regulatory approval to have more deposits than it's technically yeah. allowed? And what does this mean for future consolidation in this industry? Yeah. So a couple of reactions. First, I think we are getting back to more of reverting to norm of like this, the FDIC is under statutory authority is a requirement to have least cost resolution. It seems like at least we're getting more in the neighborhood of that than than where we were with Silicon Valley Bank and Signature, which is don't allow any consolidation, allow them to fail. And then, you know, the government has to pick up the tab for everyone. I think that's a bad model. Um, so this is more um, of like what used to happen in the old days, which is like a bank gets in trouble. Um, you know, the FDIC to avoid a larger loss to the fund uh, will do an assisted transaction probably should have been done with Silicon Valley Bank. Um, and, and a lot of times in the old days, uh, 
you know, there would be a lot of criticism of regulators from doing this and, you know, seems a little bit quiet uh, today. Uh, so maybe people have learned their lesson somewhat. I think the larger looking forward is you need more consolidation in the banking industry so you don't get to this point. So, so the smaller banks are going to start getting married now. Yeah, uh, exactly. Elizabeth Warren, exactly. by the way, talks that says the failure of First Republic on Twitter shows how deregulation has made the too big to fail problem even worse and says ultimately taxpayers will be on the hook. Do you agree with that? Well, look, I think um, she needs to get over her her inhibitions on bank mergers, right? Wow. And on any mergers, she has a bill pending in the Senate that would bar all mergers mm-hmm. over five billion dollars in the economy. And you know what? Some may be bad, but a lot are good. And there's a reason for doing them. And it's called capitalism. And I think she needs to embrace capitalism. And so, you know, I would say she's a big part behind why we're in this mess in the first place, because no one wants to step up the plate. No one wants wants to do engage in a in a road to nowhere of a transaction that may be economically beneficial and save us all these problems in the future so you know a yeah. lot of self-reflection need to be done by a lot of people including elizabeth warren keith we only have about 20 seconds left but speaking of problems of the future does this end with first republic is this a contained no. incident or could we see more ripple effects well, look, I mean, I think uh, in one way, you know, they rushed out the Silicon Valley and Signature uh, reports to say they were isolated incidents to get it out before the next one. Right. And so. So, no, I mean, you have the three of the largest bank failures in history happening in one quarter. They aren't isolated. This is what happens when monetary policy has to be increased in a compressed uh, time frame. So there's going to be more. There's going to be a credit cycle coming. Um, so, so I think we need to buckle our seatbelts, um, you know, for, for more, uh, you know, oh boy, bumps Joe. in the road. Here I was really go. hoping you weren't going to say that, <laughs> Keith, that this is how we have to part. Uh, Keith Noreka, we'll have you back, of course, when this happens. Uh, he's with Potomac Global Partners, former acting comptroller of the currency. Just something good to think about when you go into bed tonight, Kaylee. Mm, sweet dreams. He said no before you even got the question out. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Sound On Podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.